0: Let me just tell you a story. It's, 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 it's an American story, so it may not work here, and I, I, I can't do a... I can, so I'm struggling with an Aussie accent, let alone an American accent, so I'll try it anyway. Look, a, a man goes to a small town, and he sees in a local church a, a little nativity scene. Incidentally, we're looking for one for here. I think one of our members is going to loan us one for a while. And in this nativity scene, everything seems just right, except... The wise men are wearing fire helmets. Firemen's helmets. And so he's really baffled by this and he's wondering what's going on. He went up to the person who put it together and says, Look, the nativity scene's great, but I really don't get what the fire firemen's helmets are about and the wise men. And the person who constructed the nativity got really frustrated, really angry, goes, You Yankees, you know, you don't read your Bible, do you? It's in the Bible. He's so scratching his head, thinking, where in the Bible does he say the wise men were uh, uh, firemen? He goes, look. So she took out the Bible, opened it up, and read these words to her. Look, look, this is what he says. It says, right here, the three wise men came from afar. I yes, you, you, there you go. Sorry, I, I told you I can't do uh, uh, Yankee accents. Okay, came from afar. Look, I want to look at this morning something a bit more sensible than that. I want to look at the wisdom of seeking Jesus. The wisdom of seeking Jesus. There's a lot of things people seek, and the Bible suggests that the wisest thing that any person can do is to seek Jesus. So, I heading in. Here the wise men saw Jesus, just at one point, and let's just work through these verses. And I want to show you some fascinating things. Look, if you know all this, please forgive me. Uh, But otherwise, let me take you on a journey into some of the history of what's going on around the birth of Jesus. Verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. So look, straight away, because God's speaking in the Bible, because he's got a lot to say, and the Bible is only so big, okay, you can imagine every single word is valuable. Is dense. Full of information. Even these few words in the uh, just after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Straight away, if you're a Jew in first century Israel, why is Bethlehem significant to you? Who in your history is from there? David. Yeah. Did we say David? Yeah. David. King. This King David city. That's where David's from. Little unknown Bethlehem. And here we were told that Jesus is born there. Why would that be significant? Why would your ears prick up if you read that, heard that, as a first century Jew? Yeah, because they were expecting a king after David expecting a king who would come in his, in, his, uh, in his absence. This is what 2 Samuel 7 told the Jews of the time. He goes, look, uh, in your, when your days are over, he's speaking to David, and you rest with your fathers, I will raise your offspring to succeed you. Yes, in one sense, that's Solomon and his sons and his sons, but it's greater than that. Listen to this, verse 13, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. So this isn't just speaking about Solomon. Solomon. This is looking beyond Solomon, who's a type, if you like, and speaking of an eternal king. And so there was this sense in Israel that Bethlehem and King David will be relevant and significant to the future of Israel. And Luke tells us in verse 32, chapter 1, verse 32 in Luke, listen to this, "...the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David." So this expectation around David, and so when Matthew begins and Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, it sounds really, really insignificant, doesn't it? But it's loaded. Loaded, and the Jews would know that. The verse continues, during the time of King Herod. Again, what's the significance of that? During the time of King Herod. What is that doing? Let me ask you. You know, you're reading this now even. What is that doing to you about and telling you about this piece of literature that is anchored in history? It's a, can you see? It's a historical marker point. It's giving the readers all the way down history something to anchor reality on if you're conveying truth one of the methods you use is that you anchor it in real historical marker points A- and matthew does that he wants us to know this is real and he wants us to verify it because he wants us to look at the reign of herod he saying, look this happened during this thing's reign and now any historian or any lay person can find information about this guy. And here's what we find, that he's born in 73 B.C. He came to power in, in uh, 33 B.C. And the, the Romans gave him a province of southern Israel, or Palestine as we call him now. He reigned there. The temple is named after him, Herod's temple, the temple of Solomon because it was destroyed and rebuilt. So he comes to power in 40 B.C., He's wealthy, intelligent, politically gifted. Do you guys do this kind of history in schools here? Do you you look at Herod? Okay, there's a lot of history out there about him. Look, with power, inevitably comes what? Corruption. And it was no different with Herod. The power got to his head if you like he began to get paranoid about everybody and anybody he had his wife killed he had his sons killed on the day of his death he had multiple jewish leaders killed he was so paranoid that he killed everything and everyone around him to maintain his power base so this event of jesus's birth is in the historical event of herod's life this is real Not just to what else it tells us about Jesus, it tells us something about his age when he was born. Because we're told in Matthew two that after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, his his uh, stepfather, if you like, and said, "Get up, take the child." So here's what we know: Jesus, at the time of Herod's death, is still a child. Okay, that means he was born shortly before his death. Do you get that? He's still a child at his death, okay? So therefore, he, he was obviously born. If he's a child when he died, he was born shortly before his death, within a few years, otherwise he wouldn't be a child. So here's the thing. If Herod died in 4 BC, uh, no, he dies in 4 BC. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I know it sounds confusing. And, and I'll tell you why now. Herod died in 4 BC. What does that mean about Jesus' birthday? Yes, but something else, it's not when. If Herod died in 4 BC and Jesus is a child, yeah, it, what does it mean? He wasn't born in zero. Yeah, so AD is, is the dating method of, of, that we use. It's, uh, it's anno domini, just means the ear of our Lord. It's meant to start when? On Jesus' birth. Yeah. It's me- we take our dating system from Jesus' birth. He was born in zero, so we believe. And the reason we believe he was born in zero is because of a 6th century monk. I'll give you his name if if you're interested. Dionysius, a 6th century monk. He wanted to calculate Jesus' birthday and with whatever tools he had to to hand, he came up with that date that we now use as zero where the marker begins the year of our Lord. That's what it uh, marks out. But in reality, because of the marker points that Matthew gives us about Herod. Herod died in 4 BC. We therefore know, he was obviously born, Jesus was born before then because he was a child. He couldn't have been born when the monk thought he was born. Which means that entire this system is wrong. Seriously, it is not 2018 years since the birth of Jesus. In fact, the birth of Jesus is thought to be, therefore, if you taking the history between 4 BC and 5 BC. If Herod died in 4 BC, Jesus was born before it, possibly 5, possibly 6 BC, okay? He certainly wasn't born in zero. So Jesus was born something like 2,022 years ago. So a slight discrepancy. I mean, and here's a reality. This thing has been going for so long, no one's ever bothered to change it. That's why the dates as they are. So it tells you this, that this is real, it's verifiable, it's tangible history. Okay, let me take you to some more uh, detail here. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. It's some Greek word, the New Testament is in Greek. The Greek word is magos. Uh, Oh yeah, can we just move on from that? I was just giving you a timeline there. And the next slide, please. So magos from the Greek, it means oriental scientist astrologer or a a person of intellect it's why we call them wise men you got it okay now here's look again you may know this but let me just put it out there that they weren't necessarily kings therefore they were scientists probably ancient scientists they're called kings by us because of some Old Testament stuff uh, about uh, people who come to Jesus, see Jesus. Here's one in Psalm 68. Because of your temple of Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. And so somebody has put two and two together and assumed that they must have been kings. They were really just scientists. Now, again, how many of them were there? No, sorry, Brunt. We don't know how many there were. Why do you think we think there's three? Because of the three gifts, gold, incense, and myrrh. There may have been 15. Um, Or there may have been just three. There may have been two. Because wise men is plural. uh, plural. So we're not sure how many there were, but there were three gifts. And they're not named. You've heard of these names before. Melchon, Belshazzar, and Gaspar. That's not their names. Who knows where they came from? That's just a tradition. So, this much we know wise men of an unidentified number, con bearing gifts. They are intellectual scientists, astronomers, no doubt. And they came from not a fire, but from afar to Jerusalem. Verse 2 They ask, Where is the one who has been born, king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. Hence why astrology is a part of their discipline. They were studying the stars. So again here, look, as I, I assume most of us uh, are Christian here, and so it's natural for us to accept that these, this sign was supernatural. But here's some, uh, one of the things you do if you study theology, or if you have read any theology books, is you have to be fair with what you're reading. You have to look at it objectively. And here's some suggestions people have thought. You know, It may well be that this is an event this star where did it come from so historians accept it happened and some of the explanations which i wouldn't go with one in 7 bc jupiter and saturn were passing and it created perhaps this phenomenon uh, in the sky but there's an issue with that because a 7 bc is probably a bit too early and and b who were these people these guys who came to see jesus they were Astronomers, wise men. And it's unlikely they would confuse a uh, galactical phenomenon like the passing of planets with the phenomenon of, of it being a guiding star. So it's, that's not easy to step by. Next one is, do you know of Halley's Comet? It passed in 12 BC. But the issue there is, it's way too early. There's another one that, that historians have come up with. Next one, please. Is it a supernova, a faint star that explodes, creates sudden light that lasts for several weeks? It may well have been that, mightn't it? Because it appeared and disappeared, but there's one fundamental error point where it may not have been a supernova. What did this star do? We see it in verse 9. What did this star do? Yeah, it moved and stopped. And a supernova isn't that precise in his travels or movement so therefore you have to assume and here's the most logical conclusion look if this is God's son would it be a difficult thing for God to say remember what did God do how did he make stars let there be stars so it wouldn't have been a difficult thing for God to say there you go so sometimes there's historical reasons for the phenomena we see in the Bible. Sometimes they're supernatural and the Bible's full of them. Remember when Jesus was crucified? There was a supernatural phenomenon there between the six hours. Six hours in Jewish thinking starts 6 a.m. is the first hour. So the sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. It doesn't get dark there in any country during the daytime there. Okay, well, most countries. But we're told in Matthew, I think it's in Matthew, Matthew 27, from the sixth hour until the ninth, there was darkness when Jesus was being crucified. So look, it's completely normal for God to act in our world in an abnormal manner, supernaturally. And so the star must have been supernatural. And here's verse 9. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place the child was. There was... Too much precision in the movements of this star for it to be anything other than the supernatural activity of God guiding these men to His Son. And we're going to see the significance of these men a little later. Let me continue then. I want you to notice how they come with, 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 with the question they propose Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? Why is that important? I mean, what's significant? I mean, why is that? Remember, we said every word, every sentence is loaded. I mean, what's so special about that? Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? What is significant there? They knew something about this guy. Can you see? Where is the one born King of the Jews? Now, they got all that from a star. <laughs> okay? So they must have been old. These intelligent astrologers were also Old Testament scholars. And they had discerned something of this coming messiah, messiah and somehow put that and this event together and concluded that this star was God's supernatural announcement of the birth of his son for all afar and to draw them to him and so they took the initiative to come to him here let me give you one old testament text that, that they may have studied uh, micah 2 matthew quotes it here's the original verse version but you bethlehem ephratar though you are small among the clans of judah out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over israel and here's the thing whose origins are from of old from ancient times What's that saying about the birth of this character in Israel? What's he saying about his past? That is a man is a person who has a history before his birth. And here's what John tells us. We know these. We're we gonna look at these before this Christmas season ends. Uh, John chapter one. In the beginning was the word, it's another name for Jesus. Where in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus, he was with God in the beginning. Okay. Through him were things made, and without him was made nothing that was made. So here's what he's saying about Jesus, that Jesus was with God in the beginning. He made everything. What does Genesis 1 tell us about who made the world? God. If Genesis 1 says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and now in John chapter 1, he's telling us that everything was made by Jesus, who must Jesus be? By default, do you see? So here's a word to Jehovah's Witnesses: You, we do not need a specific word telling us he is God. The inference of all of New Testament teaching is that by his conduct, he is God. How did he deal with sin? Sins are against who? Who do you? When we sin, these are crimes against God. When Jesus forgave sins, what is that suggesting? The sins were committed against. Him. It's so only the person... Look, if, if Sylvia gets uh, knocked over by somebody, the person who can forgive her, or the person that she must forgive, is the person who did the crime. For Jesus to forgive sins suggests He is God. And what John is telling us here is that Jesus made everything and He must therefore be God. So the wise men come to Him, knowing He has a prehistory, knowing that He's to be an object of... I think it's the next verse because he's got a prehistory, he's to be an object of worship. Worship. They come to him and they say they have come to worship him. They've understood. It's what they war there was. You can see now what their war is going Can you see how much these foreigners, they're not so bad after all, you know. These foreigners had discerned more about Jesus than the whole of the Jewish race put together. Do you see that? That's significant. I'll tell you shortly why. It's significant. But that discerned that that it's God they're coming to, That is to be worshipped, it's what the hymn writer, uh, as uh, ca- encapsulated so brilliantly, go back please to that hymn, if you would, God was contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man that means that the god who we cannot look upon who is transcendent and distant has in jesus come near and has become one of us it's incredible there's n- there's teaching like this in no other the religion of the world. The God that we couldn't look upon, we can now see. The God that we couldn't approach. Do you remember how people approached God in, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish race? How did people approach God? What mechanism made it possible for them to approach God? It was a tedious mechanism. The sacrifices. The sacrifices, tedious and ugly and horrible. Year by year, but now we come to Jesus Earth to God through Jesus, He's the God who designed everything, designed the planet, and notice that the God that we, who was beyond all creation, when he came to His planet, came not as a, not robed in splendor, not born to live in a palace, but... the next one, please. Where, I mean, where was he born? I know. You know, when you read it and when you see the lovely, uh, glamorous pictures of nativity, it makes the stable look really, a really neat place, doesn't it? It's like that. It's not neat at all. It was a dirty, smelly, non hygienic, probably quite a vulnerable place. Would you want to put your (laughs) newborn child (laughs) in an animal trough? Can you see? What is God saying? in coming to our world in such a lowly fashion who does he want to reach out to everybody because because he's coming to us through the lowest common denominator if you like if if you like coming to us through the lowest medium we know to the lowliest of peoples there are in the most lowest social situation we can imagine. And I think here's the reality that Jesus wants to reach both the poor, the weak, the outcast, the sick, the imprisoned, the suffering, the sinful, and everyone beyond that. He's told that he came in Philippians 2 taking the very nature of our. It's almost incomprehensible to say this next word. He came in the very nature of our servant that's a that's a strong thing to say about a creator made in the likeness of humans and mark tells us that look he's come not to call the righteous but but yeah now here's the reality we're all sinners but i think the point is he's come to call those of us who acknowledge that we're sinners, and this is this is a truth. Now the Bible is really, really strong on that. So long as we think that we're not sinners, sinners just simply means someone give me one sentence definition of sin or sinner. Separated from God as a consequence of falling short of His standard, that's a sinner. Someone who is separated from God because of their failure to live live up to the mark of God, how many humans on the planet does that include? All of them. But here's a reality that we can't get away from, is that that the people who who will come to Jesus and find His forgiveness are the ones who acknowledge that they're sinners. If we've come here today and we're good enough for Jesus, the reality may be, that we're much further from him than we realize. He came to call sinners. So Jesus is now accessible to all. And I want you to notice, look, if you were a first century Jew, what did you think of Gentiles? Someone tell me. You're a first century Jew, what did you think of Gentiles, of Greeks? Yeah, and there's a specific animal that they refer to them as. Gentile, you think pigs, it's another one. The ones you like? Dogs. dogs. Gentile dogs. They they despise them. Is there no time or category for God meeting the world? And yet, who are these group of people who come bearing gifts and where are they from? They're gentiles from afar people of an entirely different ethnic origin and they come to Jesus in fact they're the ones who discerned who he is before Israel had and it tells us something about the audience that Jesus will draw and here's a reality you cannot get away from who will be and Jesus says so in a bit I'll show you who will who will make up the biggest proportion of believers that follow Jesus of all the people on the earth Who will make up the biggest proportion of Christian, if you want to use the latest technology? Gentiles. It's true. And here's what Jesus says. I'm walking away, but I need to see my notes. I've got to get back. Okay, here's what Jesus said. Where is the one who's been born of the king of the Jews? Uh, No, Matthew 8. I will say that many will come from the east and from the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was saying this to Israel as a rebuke. You guys think you're the Bees and ease? Says Jesus. Many from other parts of the world, Gentiles, will get to the kingdom, says Jesus, ahead of you. And they are. And they were. In fact, I'm assuming 99%, 100% of the people here today are Gentiles. Any Jews here? You're evidence to it. It's a sad reality that the Jewish race has been the slowest in coming to Jesus. But I'm sure, Romans 11, that there will be an influx of Jewish converts towards the end of time. But the thing about Jesus, and I want you to know this, friends, because it means something to me, it means something to you, that the greatest audience of Jesus is the Gentile world. Men and women from the east and from the west, from afar. And the and the wise men, wise men point to that. Wise men sought Jesus. We came to see star and to worship him. And here's what I want to ask you is, are you seeking Jesus? Look, we seek a lot of stuff, don't we? We'll have the next slide. We seek... Uh, as poor graphics. There, apologize. We seek everything. What do we seek? What does the world seek? Wealth. What else do we seek? Pleasures. Pleasures. Peace. Peace. Entertainment. Happiness. Power. Power. Happiness. Happiness. We seek all these things, and they're fleeting, aren't they? It's like trying to trying to grab onto a, a, a breath of air. Here's what God says: With all your seeking. Here's the one thing we ought to be seeking. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You know, I get so many people who say they're interested in God and say, oh, if he's God, he's never answered my prayer or he never did a thing for me and he wasn't there when my grandma died and he wasn't there when I called up to him the other day and, and I have to point them to what the Bible says and He said, you'll seek and find him when? Search with all your heart. The thing about God, he will be found by us. There is not a single planet, however far you're from, that you will not find Jesus if you seek him with all your heart. But he will not be found by casual, part-time, seasonal seekers. And if Jesus is distant or alien from your life, It may just be that the pursuit of Jesus for you is a part-time hobby. Do you know what the most popular part-time hobby for seeking Jesus and people assume he can be found? It happens Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. If this is the only time we seek Jesus at 10 a.m. Sunday morning, the likely chance is we haven't found him. You'll seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. And so the first challenge is, let's seek him. And I'm saying this to the church here. I'm saying it to me. If my Christianity is merely when I come and preach to you on a Sunday morning and I live like a pagan the rest of the week like George does, (laughs) the reality is I probably don't know Jesus. And so the challenge is, Jesus, you know that, those stickers, do you have them in this country? A dog is not just for Christmas. Do you get those in the back of your car? Him, he's done by a Christmas present f- as a dog because you need to look after him the rest of the year. Okay, Jesus is not only not just for Christmas, he's not just for Sundays. Jesus is not for Sundays. It must be sought. Let me me throw some things out here. Some people won't see God because they're too clever for Him. Here's what God says about you. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's not talking about intellectual bankruptcy. He's talking about wisdom. You may be the brain box of the century, but if you don't believe in Jesus, God says you're a fool. You're an absolute fool. And so the challenge is, is, come to him. Do you believe in him? Here's another thing. And here's one, perhaps if, particularly if you're young. Look, you may be 17, 15, 21, 25. You may even be young, 44-year-old. You get those as well, you know. 45-year-old. Yeah, see, when you get to 44, 45, you can't even remember how old you are. Okay, that's when you know you're really young, old. Okay, look, here's the thing. You may be thinking, look, at, uh, this God stuff is good but let me get my career sorted. Let me get my education. Let me pass my exams. Let me get into a good job. Let me get married to somebody I really like. Let me get a car that I really want. Let me get a house that I really want to live in. Let me get those holidays that I really want. I will follow Jesus, but not just yet. Do you know what Jesus says to you? Listen to these words. Next one, please. A guy here saving up for the future thought he had the rest of his life before him. And God says to him, You fool. He says to you, teenagers, You're a fool if you think you can put God on the back burner whilst you do everything you want to do and then you'll come back to Him when you're ready. And what does God say to this guy? You're not going to make it through tonight, mate. How are you going to seek me in the future? And look, I don't, I don't want to you know, scare anybody here, but none of us know if we'll make it home today. Do we? I mean, we've got medical people here. How many of the people, more uh, come through the hospital you work on, face death and die, who are just going to buy a Christmas present at the shop? Two. Two this week. I can tell you of a young lady back in Wales where we used to live, getting ready to get married the following week, driving over the hills, crashed the car, never made her wedding. You see, we don't know the future, and it's the most stupid thing to do to put Jesus off until you've lived your life, until you've done the dream, until you've you know, in a better position and settle down. You may not settle down. Make your peace with God right now. Before you leave, pick up a What's Life About Leaflet. It'll tell you how you can make your peace with God. And before you even step into your car, ask Jesus to meet you, to forgive you, and to come into your life. And one last thing. Look, you may be out there, you may be thinking, yeah, but look, I do believe in this Jesus stuff, but I don't believe in Buddha and Allah, and every other God you can think of. You know what Jesus said? And this is really offensive in our world. Jesus says, I don't care who you believe, there is only one way to God. And Jesus says, I am exclusively that way. People don't like to think Jesus said that, but he said it. Let me show you. Can you see? He said these words. So when we say Christianity is exclusive, the only way to God, don't stone the preacher. It's Jesus' own words. You listen, look. I am the way and the truth and the life. And just in case I once had a person who says, oh yeah, but that may just mean one way. Okay, just in case if you think that's not exclusive, read the rest of the sentence. Nobody, that includes me and you and, and your neighbor, comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is absolutely clear. Not all roads lead to God. We cannot share, we do not share anything in common with any other religion but Christianity. They are not partners of alternative ways for alternative ethnic groups to find Jesus. There is only one way (laughs) to God and that is through Jesus wherever you're born which means my my final message to the christian now which means christian brothers and sisters what must we do if jesus is exclusively and the only way to god the only hope of our world what must we do that's exactly right sarah what did our logos say what did our badges say our banners and it's why they're there. It's because we must never forget. You see, if we've got the truth, and it's the only truth, and it's the truth if you're born in Bangladesh, Zimbabwe, Afghanistan, Papua New Guinea, even Oz of all places who want to go there, okay? Wherever you're born, it's the only message. It means the people who have it, and you have it, and you have it, and you have it, and you have it, and I've got it, it means we have to do everything humanly possible to get this message to them. A prisoner once on death row in Great Britain, as he was being led to his execution, said to the priest who was leading him there, if I believed what you believe, said to the priest, that Jesus is the only way to God, I would walk across the length of Great Britain on my hands and knees, across glass, to convert one soul. What are we doing? What are we doing to ensure that no soul on our planet fails to hear about Jesus? May God give us grace. Look, let me say, Peter just spoke about missionary work. (laughs) We're doing something. Your money is doing something. The investment in this property is doing something, at least locally. And it's not just doing it locally, because we've just said our sermons go on YouTube, go on podcasts, go on SoundCloud. What parts of the globe have access to those mediums? Almost every corner of our planet. It's why we're doing it. And so your money, and this is for your encouragement, your money that has supported this transition, that keeps our YouTube channel going and our podcasts going, your money that pays for impart, uh, and and, and, and I forget his name now, uh, working there, is your little bit for the kingdom of God to go to the world. So God bless you. But I wonder, could we do a little more? I'll leave that with you. Wise men saw Jesus, they still do. Hey, Hey, you know the wisest people on the planet? It's you. The wisest people on the planet. Seek Jesus. Amen.